I know most of you in the room know me, but if you're visiting with us today or have been here recently, uh, my name is Jeremy Hudson. I'm the student minister here at Emmanuel, and I'm, I'm very happy to have the opportunity to consider the word of the Lord with you this morning. So if you will, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Uh, we're going to be in verses 38 through 50, uh, putting a cap on uh, Matthew chapter 12 this morning. Um, if you've ever seen any episode of any one of, I think, the 10,000 Law & Order uh, shows, then you know how each episode goes, right? You've got bad guy. Bad guy commits crime. Bad guy gets caught as the crime is investigated. And that's usually the flow of the show. But if you're lucky, you get one of those episodes that involves a trial, Maybe not in every episode, but you get some occasionally. And when there is a trial, what usually happens is it's over dramatic. You've got this back and forth between the district attorney and the defense attorney, with the focus all being on the district attorney and how they are going to prove that this bad guy actually is a bad guy and committed the crime. And just when it seems like the bad guy might actually get away with the crime there's usually this dramatic revelation, this piece of evidence that comes in at the 11th hour that they done it, they're guilty. But until then, it's up in the air because the DA hasn't done the work. They haven't met the burden of proof that is necessary. So arriving at Matthew 12, 38, we find Jesus having to deal with the demand from the scribes and the Pharisees. And so just as a reminder, uh, we are in the third of five sections that are contained within Matthew's gospel. And so to this point, Matthew has unpacked that in, in Jesus' coming, he is bringing with him the kingdom of God. Through his ministry, his teaching, and his miracles, he shows that the kingdom of God is vastly different than anything that they had ever known before. But not everyone who was listening to and observing Jesus uh, were appreciating what it was that they were seeing. So beginning with Matthew chapter 9, we start seeing the Pharisees' animosity towards Jesus beginning to build and beginning to grow and even beginning to spill over. At first, it starts with questions to his disciples about the company that Jesus is keeping, the people that he is dining with. Well, then come the, the first accusation, uh, this time behind his back, about the power that was fueling his ministry, the power that was fueling the miracles that he performed you then get in Matthew 12, first a confrontation regarding the actions of his disciples on the Sabbath. And then there is a second round of accusations uh, about the source of the power behind his miracles. Now specifically in Matthew 9 verse 34 and Matthew 12, 24, that's where we get the Pharisees accusing Jesus of providing healing for two different demon-oppressed individuals by the power of Satan. In Matthew 9, they say that he's cast this demon out of a person who is mute by the prince of demons. And in Matthew 12, it's someone who is blind. The demon is cast out by the power of Beelzebul. So following this, this latest charge, 
Pastor Michael showed us last week, uh, Jesus just systematically destroys their argument. He just dismantles them uh, like pulling legs off of a bug, just one at a time, just picking them apart, showing the foolishness of their argument. And so in that, he points to them as being under the sway of evil because their careless words reveal the evil that is brooding in their own hearts. And so not to be deterred, when we get in Matthew 12, verse 38, we find the scribes and the Pharisees wanting to continue their dialogue with Jesus. And in so doing, they continue to reveal the wickedness that is in their hearts. So if you will, look with me at Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. It says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person... It passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it also will be with this evil generation." Verse 46, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you again for the privilege of gathering in worship of you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, ruler over heaven and earth. God, be pleased with our time in your word this morning. I pray you would open our eyes to what you say in your word, to what is true and what is right, what is good for building us up in the faith, that by the power of your spirit, we would be grown, that we would mature. And Lord God, we would glorify you. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. I think there's two things in the text that we ought to see. And the first is that the wicked person never has enough proof that Jesus is the Christ. So following Jesus' undoing of the accusation made about the source of his power, we're introduced to this group of scribes and Pharisees who approach Jesus asking him for a sign. And so this may be the same group that was present for the healing of the blind man if we just go back a couple of verses to verse 22, or it may not be. This may all be part of that same conversation, or it may be happening at a different time. That's not entirely clear, but what is clear is that uh, Matthew wants us to see the same defiant unbelief 
behind the accusation that Jesus' power, power was from Satan, that that same defiant unbelief is also what is behind this request. And you know, it may seem a little odd to us, uh, because it would seem that at the very least, they would be aware of this miracle that Jesus has performed, especially the one that, that seems to have prompted this exchange. But see, what was happening here is the scribes and the Pharisees, they want confirmation from that Jesus was from God and was empowered by His Spirit. And now this, this wouldn't be the first time in Israel's history that God was uh, confirming that something was of Him. Think back to Moses. Moses was given signs to affirm his God-given authority, both to Pharaoh and to the Hebrew people. Gideon was given the signs with the fleece of wool. First, that everything around the fleece was wet, and then only the fleece was wet, affirming that God was with him and that the promises he had made to Gideon were true. Elijah was able to call down fire from heaven to prove that he was serving the one true God, and the prophets of Baal were false. Ahaz and Hezekiah were offered signs to prove that God was speaking through the prophet Isaiah. But in this instance, the hardness of the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes is made evident because they are persisting in unbelief. Last week, Pastor Michael pointed out that the miracle that Matthew has just presented us with back in uh, verse 22 it's not your average, everyday, just run-of-the-mill miracle if there is such thing as an average, everyday, run-of-the-mill miracle. In Jesus healing a blind man, he has performed a miracle. He has performed an act that is exclusively messianic. This is same, the same is true from Matthew 9, 34. The first time we see the Pharisees accusing Jesus of performing a miracle by the power of Satan. There, like I said a minute ago, he heals a man who was mute. And when that happened, the people who saw it said, never was anything like this seen in, in Israel. Isaiah 32, verses 3 and 4, and then Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, they both point to the healing of the blind and the mute as exclusively messianic. This is, of course, like Michael said last week, a, a reference to the spiritual nature of the work accomplished through the Messiah in the turning of the hearts of God's people to himself but those outward and obvious acts were testifying to his identity, to Jesus' identity as the one who was and who is capable of turning the hearts of God's people back to God. But yet, nothing was enough for these so-called religious leaders. So what we have to see is that in asking him for another sign, what they are doing is putting him on trial. But instead of coming at Jesus as innocent until proven guilty, he's guilty until proven innocent. And it's on him to meet their burden of proof before they would be willing to repent of their sins and believe. Jesus is not having any of it, though. First, he identifies them with the sins of previous generations by calling them wicked and adulterous. 
These wicked generations, they turned from the worship of God to idolatrous worship of the false gods of the land of Canaan. Those generations committed spiritual adultery over and over and over again because of their unfaithfulness to God, because they did not trust Him. They did not follow Him. They were not truly His children. And this generation, despite their belief that their adherence to the law was what made them pure, they were just as faithless as those generations, which is made clear by their need for yet another sign from Jesus. Second, Jesus doesn't actually turn down their request. Now, he doesn't answer it in the way that they want him to answer it, but he does tell them, you will receive a sign the sign of, of Jonah. See, Jonah, we know, we've heard this story before, Jonah was instructed by God to go to Nineveh and preach against the city and to preach against its people. Nineveh was the capital city of Israel's biggest enemy at that point in its history, the Assyrians. Uh, the, the Assyrians were a brutal people who did hor- uh, horrific things to the people that they conquered. So upon uh, receiving the command to go to them and to preach what God would give him to preach, uh, Jonah says, all right, I- I'm out, and he heads the other, the other direction. That ends up with him being thrown off of a boat and beginning to sink, doomed to drown. But God miraculously delivers him from certain death, sending a sea creature, a large fish, to swallow him. And at God's command, the creature then spits Jonah up on dry land, very much alive, and Jonah is sent once again to Nineveh. And so this is the sign that Jesus says that the generation before him, this is the sign you'll receive. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Clearly here he's referencing his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Crucified, dying for the sins of his people, his wayward, adulterous people, and then buried, but raised to life on the third day. This was the sign that God had accepted the sacrifice of the Son's own life. This was the sign that His wrath against the sins of those who would repent and believe had been satisfied. This was the sign that Jesus was indeed the Christ of God. But even though they would receive this sign, this wicked and this adulterous people simply could not, would not accept that Jesus is the Christ, no matter what happened. Matthew shows us this at the end of his gospel. Consider Matthew 28, 11 through 15, which should be on the screen behind me. While they were going... That is, the disciples, as the disciples were going after having seen the empty tomb, encountered the resurrected Christ. While they were going, behold, some of the guard, that is, the Roman guard, tasked with guarding the tomb so that the disciples wouldn't steal the body. Some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while you were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. 
And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Not even receiving the sign they were asking for and were promised could cause them to repent and believe. That's why Jesus says the Ninevites would condemn them at the judgment. The Ninevites, Gentiles, who were the enemies of God and the enemies of his people, they turned in repentance at Jonah's preaching. Jonah didn't even call them to repent. He just said, the city's going down, guys. And they still did. They still turned to the God of Israel. Yet the wicked Israelites who were standing before Jesus, who not only had been called to repent, but had been given clear and convincing evidence that Jesus had the ability to forgive their sins, just scoffed at him. Their hearts were so hard that they were unable to believe any proof that was presented to them. True worship of God is impossible apart from faith in His Christ. And Jesus is saying here, His identity as the Christ will ultimately be proven in His resurrection. Don't miss this. In His response to the Pharisees, He's telling them exactly what He's going to do. And that's significant, I, I think. If someone tells you that they're going to die, and, but then they're going to be raised from the dead, well, then they turn around and they die and are raised from the dead. I think we should probably at least listen to what they have to say. Listen, if you're not sure about Jesus and who He is and if you should believe and if He is worth following, let me urge you, start with the question of did Jesus actually bodily raise from the dead? I'm sure you have plenty of questions. Who doesn't? Good questions. But we have to start here. If he was raised from the dead, then it validates everything he said and did. That's the conclusion that his disciples came to. They didn't just find an empty tomb. They saw him raised. They touched him. They ate with him. They conversed with him over an extended period of time, 40 days before watching him physically, bodily ascend into heaven. This wasn't blind faith. It was rooted in experience. And then they died. Because they could not, would not stop preaching, proclaiming that Jesus was raised from the dead. I mean, remember their exchange before the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Acts chapter 4. They're threatened, they're told, shut your mouths. And they say, we can't stop proclaiming what we have seen. It seems inconceivable that they would subject themselves to the suffering they went through and to death for a lie. Dan Arsenault came on Wednesday night, uh, this, this past Wednesday night, and he taught on the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection. And so let me encourage all of us, but especially those of you who may not be sure about all this or who may doubt 
Jesus' resurrection from the dead, look up our midweek podcast on iTunes or just simply go to our website, emmanueltuscaloosa.org, and just listen to Dan's presentation. It's 45 minutes. What have you got to lose? It won't hurt you just to listen. If he was raised, and we gather this morning because we believe that he was raised from the dead, his words stand. And his word, his command was repent and believe. So turn from your sins. Believe that Jesus died in your place for your sins and was raised from the dead. Come to him in faith. So after dealing with the sign of Jonah, Jesus gives another example of a response that was more appropriate than that of the generation before him, this time holding up the example of the queen of the south. Uh, You might jot down, we read about her in 1 Kings 10 or 2 Chronicles 9, both uh, telling uh, the same account. Um, So having heard about the wisdom of Solomon, she comes to test him. She wants to see if Solomon is for real. And so having great wisdom from God, he is able to answer all of her questions, uh, prompting her to offer praise to the God of Israel because she recognized the tremendous wisdom that was in front of her. Now she was presented with true wisdom and she marveled at it. But the wicked and adulterous generation had the wisdom of God in the flesh with them and they scoffed. And so to make matters worse, Jesus points out that the Ninevites and the Queen of the South responded, responded to something that wasn't even as great as who was uh, in and among the present generation. And so this is the second and the third times that Matthew records Jesus as having pointed to something as uh, himself as greater than, than something else. And so back in verse 6 of chapter 12, he tells us that he is greater than the temple, which was a reference to the priesthood. He's the true priest. He's the great high priest who offers uh, perfectly the perfect sacrifice for sin. He lays down his own life to make his people permanently clean from their sins. He's also the greater prophet, the one that all the prophets before him were pointing towards. Jonah ran from what God called him to do. Jesus humbly embraced the cross. Jonah was angry with God for relenting in his wrath against Nineveh. Jesus asked the Father to forgive his murderers while he died on the cross. Jonah preached condemnation. Jesus died in the place of the condemned. Jonah was confirmed as a prophet of God by God miraculously delivering him from death. Jesus was confirmed to be the prophet sent from God because he died in obedience to the will of the Father. And then he was raised by the Father from the dead. Lastly, he is the greater king. He's the promised son of David who would establish his throne, the Davidic throne, forever. Solomon had wisdom given by God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Solomon ruled Israel. Jesus rules the nations. Solomon, in his old age, turned from God as he was led astray by the many wives that he gathered, turning to their gods. Jesus obeyed the Father even to the point of death on the cross. Solomon built a physical temple that was destroyed. 
Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is the prophet, priest, and king to end all other prophets, priests, and kings. He wields an authority that is unmatched and is unrivaled throughout history. He was and he is the Christ of God. Everything he said and everything he did points at this, screams at it. The things he taught, the authority, the authority with which he taught, the miracles he performed, it all show it. And ultimately, his resurrection from the dead proves it. And yet the wicked and adulterous generation asks for more proof. They thought they were putting him, to, putting him on trial. But they were on trial and they didn't even know it. And the evidence was just continuing to pile up. They didn't know God. And they are not his children. See, children of God do not keep coming back to him to ask him for more and more proof that he is worthy of our worship. Sadly, there are many, and probably quite a few, that fill the pews in churches who treat God as if he is nothing more than a worn-down flea market salesman who can be bartered with. And this shows itself in promise-making. God, if you'll just do this for me, then I will do this for you. But if your willingness to turn from sin and toward God is based on whether or not he gives you what you ask for, then friend, you have a fundamental misunderstanding of biblical repentance. This is just another way of asking for a sign so that God can prove that he's worthy of worship. And it completely ignores that he has already given us the only sign that we need in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. When your repentance is based on God meeting your every condition, then you are not walking in repentance. At that point, repentance is nothing more than a bargaining chip. And you're holding on to that card so that you can play it whenever you feel like you need something from God. But persistence in unrepentance leaves you in an incredibly perilous place. Something that Jesus highlights for the scribes and the Pharisees in his illustration about an unclean spirit. So we get to verses 43 through 45, which deal with the unclean spirit that has gone out from the person. It's passing through waterless places, seeking rest, but not finding any. Decides it's going to come back. Uh, it's going to return to the house from whence, it, from whence it came. And when it does, it finds the house empty, swept, put in order. And then it goes and it finds seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter in and, and dwell there. And so we probably have some questions. It's a little strange. What Jesus is saying here, is this the, the normal course of events for when a, a demon is cast out? Are we supposed to infer from this that demons don't like water? Um, do they go out? Do they rally the troops uh, and, then, and then go back uh, in the direction that, that they came? Um, I don't think we're supposed to look at this and develop some a, a demonology from it. Jesus here is not explaining the, the migration habits of demons, uh, and he's not describing the, the casting out of them as a fruitless exercise. He's telling this generation, you are in an incredibly perilous situation. 
See, looking at the text, because the person who has the unclean spirit casts out of them because they don't fill the void, if you will. They don't fill the home previously occupied by the spirit. Uh, The freedom that they've gained is only going to last for so long. The unclean spirit will get tired of traveling about, and it's, it's going to come back. And if it finds that the home is ready to be occupied, it's on the market and no one's made an offer yet, well, then it's going to go get its little demon buddies who are even worse than itself, and it's going to come back with all of his friends, seemingly making it much more difficult to be cast out again. That seems like that's the point. It's just going to be so much more difficult to get this person healed from their possession. The person was free, who was free of their unclean spirit is now worse off than they were before. And so continuing in unbelief was proving that this was and would be true of the wicked and adulterous generation that was before Jesus. Consider what we've already seen of them in Matthew's gospel narrative. The opposition from the Pharisees has grown from questioning Jesus about the people that he was dining with uh, to making accusations behind his back to plotting to kill him. If you want to talk about escalation, that's, that's escalating rather quickly. Eventually, they will falsely accuse him of a crime. They're going to rile up the crowds against him. They're going to put the pressure on Pilate to put him to death, even though Pilate's like, this guy's innocent. I find no fault in him. And then, when he is raised from the dead, rather than admit that they were wrong and finally repent, they just pay off the Roman guard refusing the very sign that they've been asked for. Their last condition is worse than their first. If you find that the regular pattern of your own life is that you only consider turning from sin and to God when He does what you want, then you need to hear and heed this warning. This comes from a small view of sin. Our sin, which is rebellion against the king of the universe, and from a small view of who this king is. So the danger for you here is twofold. If you ask and you don't receive, you won't repent, because instead, you will become increasingly more angry and more bitter towards God. Why would I turn to you when you can't seem to meet my needs? The other danger is that you actually get what you want. In that case, even if you do try to clean up your life a little bit, it's just empty moralism. You haven't recognized the seriousness of your sin. This is manipulation. You're holding up your end of the bargain so that you can prove that you're a good trading partner to make future trades down the road. Honoring God here is nothing more than a means to an end. The ends being temporary trinkets at the expense of heavenly treasure, which is not honoring to God at all. And in both instances, the last condition is worse than the first. And so just as an aside, these are two of the very real dangers present with the prosperity gospel and prosperity theology. Requiring that God give you your heart's desire before you will repent and give him the worship that he is due is no different than the scribes and Pharisees' unwillingness to repent until they have uh, seen a sign. It's refusing to do what God requires of us 
until we feel that he has provided the necessary proof that he is worthy of our worship. But the resurrection of Jesus has done that. And those in his family recognize it. And so that's the second thing I think we ought to see in the text this morning, is that the repentant person's place in Christ's family is confirmed by their doing the will of God. And so at, at a quick glance, you know, verses 46 through 50 might be, seem like it's disconnected from uh, verses 38 through 45, but let's just consider what, what happens here again. So you've got Jesus, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his, mother's, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him, but he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and, and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So let's think about this. So Matthew places this event right after Jesus has, has pointed out the very dangerous place that the Pharisees are in because of their continuing uh, to, to repent. They, they are continuing in unbelief. They are persisting in unrepentance. Of course, it, it's, then it's, it's not just the Pharisees who are in danger, but that also means anyone who follows their teaching is in danger. See, the, the Pharisees demanding a sign from Jesus is actually going to come up again here in just a few chapters, in chapter 16, verse 1. And again, in that same spot, though there's a few things that are different, Jesus tells them that they're going to get the sign of Jonah, and that's the only sign that they're going to get. But then he tells his disciples, as they're coming away from that interaction with the scribes and the Pharisees, or Pharisees and Sadducees in that case, um, he warns them, he tells them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which was a reference we find out to their teaching. Those who follow the Pharisees are going to be led away from repentance and faith in Jesus. Why? Because their teachers refuse to repent and follow Jesus. That is in stark contrast with those who do follow Jesus. They do repent of their sins. And so to this point, what we have seen, in, or at least in chapter 12, what we've seen are those who, uh, in response to Jesus' ministry, reject him. But in verses 46 through 50, we get a, a glimpse into how those who receive Jesus, how those who accept him, how they respond to him by doing the will of the Father in verse 50. And so to highlight this, Jesus holds up the image of family. In verse 46, we read that his biological family, his mother and brothers, well, they want to have a word from him. And in verse 48, he asks the question, who are my mother and my brothers? And before we kind of, in our Southern culture, kind of be like, okay, you know, clutch the pearls or turn into Jar Jar and act like, oh, how rude. No, before we go to that, that place, we have to understand Jesus hasn't forgotten who Mary is. He hasn't forgotten who his brothers are. And this isn't a disrespecting of them. He's instead, he's making a point here to those who are listening. He points at his disciples and says, this is, these are my family. Those who do the will of the Father. He proved himself to be the Son of God in his unwavering obedience to the will of the Father. He submitted himself to the Father's will, saying, not my will, but yours, even as he poured out in anguish over bearing the full, full wrath of God that was to come against sin. 
He died in the place of sinners, separating himself from fellowship with the Father to embrace the fullness of hell for sinful humanity. And in his resurrection, we see that the Father was truly pleased with him because the Son had done the Father's will, making a way for many to be reconciled to him. And so what is the will of the Father? Well, the will of the Father is two sides of the same coin. It's repentance and it's faith. Turning from sin and turning to Christ. Paul points at this in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 where he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. We are justified. We are made right with God through repentance of sin and faith in His Christ. Faith in the Lord Jesus And so having been justified, we are also sanctified. We grow up in the likeness of Christ through a life of repenting of sin and believing in Him. We grow in the holiness and righteousness that we receive through Christ because we have already been declared to be holy and righteous in Him. We are becoming who we already are in Christ. But an error that we we often make is thinking about repentance only in terms of what we stop doing. Using gossip as an example, the way that we would often think about repentance is uh, that if I'm going to repent of the sin of gossip, well, okay, I'm just going to stop talking about people behind their backs. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond just stopping the sinful behavior and replacing it with something that pleases God. So instead of gossiping about so-and-so, I befriend them. I encourage them. I build them up and I stand up for them if others start to gossip about them. When my believing friends start to gossip, not only do I you know, not jump in with them, not only do I push back from that and say, no, I'm not going to do that, but I look to them and I tell them, I warn them, gossip is wicked. This is sinful. Please stop, repent, and honor the Lord with your words. And this all comes out of changing affections. Increasing desires for the things of God. At the heart of repentance is a growing distaste for sin and an increasing appetite for righteousness. It's about a value assessment. Deciding that honoring God means more to you than whatever sin it is that you are turning from. Sexual immorality, gossip, lying, anger, and so on. It's about treasuring God above everything else. It's about holding Him up for others to see that He alone is worthy of worship. Those in the family of Jesus, the children of God, they recognize the need to have their desires brought in line with the Father's so that they can do His will. But how do I do that? How do I bring my desires in line with those of a perfect, holy, righteous God? Through repentance. Through turning to what He has provided to bring about that change in our lives by and through His Holy Spirit. You pray, pleading with God that He would open your eyes to the sin in your life. You study His Word, asking God to cause you to see what it is that He desires from His people and where your life is not consistent with His will and aid you in bringing your life in line with His desires. You surround yourself with His people, participating in the life of a God-fearing congregation through church membership. 
putting yourself in a position for them to point out sin that is in your life that they see because they're around you and they observe you and they know you. You bring yourself under sound preaching, being fed the word of the Lord week after week, having your mind renewed and your affections shaped through the proper preaching of the scriptures. So through these means, the Spirit of God brings our desires and our affections in line with those of the Father. But it's also through suffering that our desires and affections are shaped and refined. I would argue with you that it is never clearer who is in the family of God, who belong to Jesus' family than during times of suffering. Suffering has a way of bringing out the heart's true feelings about God and whether or not my willingness to turn from my sin in worship of Him is circumstantial. It might be financial hardship. It could be job loss, a failing marriage, wayward children, a sick and dying family member, loneliness, or or some other trial that brings you to the point where you cry out to God, God, if you will just do this for me, then I will commit myself to you in a fresh, new way that I, I haven't before. You may find yourself in that place this morning. You may have recently come out of it, and there, you may just be there soon enough, but if so, let me encourage you, instead of coming to God with bargains and bartering, set your gaze on the cross and on the empty tomb. Turn away from attempting to barter and bargain with God. But at the same time, understand that crying out to God in the midst of our suffering, detailing our pain, our fears, our anguish, that in and of itself is not wrong. In fact, this is healthy and good and biblical when done with proper reverence. Consider the Psalms of Lament. Time and again, we have examples in the Psalms of the Psalter crying out to God in the midst of their sorrow and their pain, but always ending with reflections on His goodness. Biblical lament is a healthy practice, one that sadly we've gotten too far away from. Because in biblical lament, We bring our hurts, we bring our questions, we bring our concerns before the Lord, all the while recognizing His infinite greatness, placing all of our hopes in Him. And in this, we join with Christ our Lord in crying out, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It may seem in the moment that the goodness of God is nothing more than a fleeting memory, but it is right and it is good to remind ourselves in our own crying out to God that He is good. The siren song of sin in those moments is that if if God were truly good, you wouldn't be feeling that pain. He can't deliver you. So he hasn't done it yet. So turn from him. Turn to the pleasures of the flesh. That will numb your pain. But it offers no proof that it can hold up its end of the bargain, only leading to our being dashed on the rocks of our own stormy seas when sin's promises ultimately go unfulfilled. 
But the God of the Bible takes on flesh to dwell with and suffer as a man. God the the Father sends Christ the Son who suffers, dies, and raises from the dead to save us from our own sins. And in so doing, provides all the proof that we need. All the proof to secure our worship that is the resurrection of Christ. So in your suffering, cling to these truths. Hold fast to the one who first loved you and continue putting to death sin, even as God works through your pain to make you into the likeness of his son. This is a distinguishing marker of Jesus' family, continuing in repentance and faith even when it seems like your whole world is burning down around you. And we do this while clinging to the hope that we have because of his resurrection. As he was raised to life, so will we. This is our hope. This is what we cling to. That God will raise us up on the last day to eternal riches and to glory that the troubles of this world cannot take away from us. We hold fast to that hope, continuing in repentance and faith as he holds us fast, bringing us time and again to the cross and to the empty tomb, which is the proof of his greatness and his worthiness of worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the cross. And we thank you for the empty tomb. God, you've shown great mercy to us, a sinful people running headlong into sin and away from you, denying you at every turn, spitting in your very face. And yet you've saved us from ourselves. You've saved us from our sins. God, you are a God who is merciful and gracious and kind. So God, in your mercy and in your grace and your kindness, God, I pray that in the midst of our suffering, you would remind us of the cross. You would remind us of the empty tomb. You would remind us of the great things you have done and the sure promises that are ours in Christ. Lord, hold us fast. We can't hold ourselves. We'd all fall away if it was up to us. But you hold you keep, set our gaze on you that we might live lives that bring the glory and honor and praise to you that you alone deserve. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray, amen.